Greetings, everyone. I'd like to talk about the Day of Atonement in the Bible. Now, this particular Day of Atonement I'm actually giving from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. And while most New Zealanders have been very friendly and polite and courteous, for some reason the people here did not give me any water to drink. Um, I guess because they know it's the Day of Atonement. So I guess uh, that part of the message is out clear to those people here. The Day of Atonement runs until uh, sunset, and in uh, 2014, it runs from sunset October 3rd to sunset October 4th, which is when many of you will be seeing this. Now, the Jews tend to call this day Yom Kippur, and in the original Hebrew, it's actually called Yom HaKippurim, which is Hebrew for the uh, Day of Atonements, and they use a plural on it, the Day of Atonements. The Jews typically keep a 25-hour fast for the Day of Atonement. They do so because they want to be sure that they've done it long enough. Traditionally, those of us the Church of God keep it about 24 hours and 6 seconds, <laughs> plus or minus. <laughs> um, those of us in the uh, uh, Northern Hemisphere, the day is actually getting shorter all the time. So if you've gone 24 hours, you know you've done, <laughs> uh, you've done it. The... Uh, the date tends to fall on the Hebrew calendar of the 10th day of the month of Tishri, which is the 7th month of the calendar. Now, as far as where do we get these ideas, we get them from the Bible. If you take your Bibles, you can go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Leviticus 23, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. But believe it or not, there are people who think these aren't God's feasts. Actually, the day I'm doing this, I actually got an email from somebody telling me that uh, it's probably a sin for Christians to keep this day, even though Jesus kept the day, Paul kept the day, all the early Christians kept the day, uh, the Greco-Romans complained, and I'll probably get to that today, that people were keeping that day. Apostle Paul said to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Christ kept the day. And it always astounds me, people who complain about the days that we're supposed to keep. Because I just read you from the book, from the Bible, Leviticus 23, 1 through 2, it says these are God's feasts. Now I'm going to read you that this is one of God's feasts that you're here for. But some say, oh, maybe it's a sin to keep this day. Unbelievable stuff. Um, if you ever had to answer all the emails <laughs> that, that I get, <laughs> um, you'd be surprised the range of questions and issues that come up on a regular basis. Well, anyway, for the Day of Atonement, continue in Leviticus 23. This time we're going to go down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, remember, this is God speaking, so this was not Moses' idea. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month, shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it's a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Now in terms of afflicting the soul, we'll get to this later, but typically this has been interpreted or understood to be fasting for people who can physically fast, people are physically able to do so. 
Verse 30, And anyone who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls from the ninth day of the seventh month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. As I said, in 2014, it'll be from sunset October 3rd through sunset October 4th. Now this day is also talked about in the book of Numbers. So if you'd like, you can go to Numbers chapter 29. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11 from the book of Numbers chapter 29. On the tenth month, excuse me, tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. A holy convocation would mean getting together for Sabbath services or holy day services, uh, which uh, many of us can do. Now, for our scattered brethren, of course, you can't get together that quite that way, which is why we have these sermons uh, on the Internet, so you can tr observe it that particular day. However, you can still afflict your soul. You can still fast if it's appropriate for you. You can watch the service, and, of course, you shouldn't be doing your normal work. You can do all that even if there's no congregation nearby you. Verse 8, you shall present a burnt offering for the Lord as a sweet aroma. And there's a, a list about offerings, because offerings were taken up on the Day of Atonement. Well, we took one up today in New Zealand, and wherever you are, if, uh, if you wish, you can send one in to us uh, by mail or through PayPal or the Internet or something along that line. But talking about this particular day, as I mentioned a few moments ago, fasting is, generally speaking, how the term afflict your soul has been understood. There's a few scriptures we won't get to, but briefly, uh, Psalm 35, 13, and, uh, as well as uh, uh, Psalm 69, 10, and Isaiah 58, 5, uh, talk about that. So typically within the Church of God, unless somebody is pregnant, uh, or as let's say ill with something perhaps like diabetes or is nursing or something along that line or somehow can't actually uh, fast. Uh, members do fast. Uh, that means go without food and without water. And yes, I was asked that also today if fasting meant that we're supposed to go without water as well. And I said, yes, that's what it means if you can do it. And others are afflicted in different ways. Um, I would just comment on a point here. I remember going to uh, the feast in France. It was in France, and somebody was speaking, and he was talking about the Day of Atonement. And he was talking about the fact that sometimes people never have their children fast. And he was suggesting that people try to do that. It doesn't mean your newborn baby should be fasting. Okay, we're not saying that. Uh, and what I'm going to give here are some guidelines as opposed to hard and fast. You have to do it this way because I've done it this way or that kind of a thing. But in our family, typically what we've done is we've eased our children into fasting. How do you ease your children into fasting? Well, let's see. You have them stop eating dinner before sunset on the Day of Atonement. That's one. Have them eat dinner the next day after sunset on the Day of Atonement. That helps a little bit. Um, we absolutely would not allow them to have, uh, let's say, sweets or desserts or anything like that during the Day of Atonement. Uh, and we would cut down things like that until they could handle it. And our children were usually more willing to fast earlier than we would have asked them to. So uh, our children did uh, do that. And they made it through. But the, an odd thing was uh, once, I remember, we visited a Church of God family who had a very different attitude toward Day of Atonement. 
after Sabbath services, we went over to their house, and the mother was fasting just like ourselves and our children, but their children were eating ice cream and those kinds of things, and my children were just flabbergasted because they were a little older than our children, and they were... Uh, they weren't fasting at all. They didn't make any attempt whatsoever. And as parents, I think you should try to you know, ease your children into this. And uh, that's what we did. And I think it was successful. And uh, our sons still do so to this day. I'll get to it later. But in the New Testament, the Day of Atonement is referred to as a fast. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, a lot of the early... Uh, practices for the Day of Atonement are laid forth in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 30, uh, we're going to stay there for a little bit. And we're going to go through this just a little bit. They had various offerings that were given. And it says in verse 8, when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. You're not supposed to offer strange incense on it. So in other words, God had ways, procedures. He wanted people to do things the right way. To do a strange incense would be to decide to adopt basically pagan practices in terms of uh, rituals, or in our case, to adopt pagan holidays and the pagan way of worship God. And verse 10, And Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of the atonement. So there is a sin offering once a year on the day of atonement, once a year shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations is most holy to the Lord. And in verse 11 it talks about you take a census of the children of their number. Every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among you. Verse 13. And this is what everyone among them who is numbered shall give. Um, it talks about a certain particular type of offering. Verse 14. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. There will be a memorial to your children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now you'll notice here, they took a census, everybody aged 20 and up. Uh, in different countries, they have different ages on when you're supposed to be an adult. Uh, in the United States, they have two or three ages. Um, but the legal drinking age for alcohol in most states, if not all of them now, is 21. Uh, the biblical uh, age, not for drinking, but for being an adult, is apparently age 20. That's what it says here. And we see that in other parts of the, uh, the Bible that talks about that as well. Now, there's a unique ceremony related to the Day of Atonement that's discussed in Leviticus chapter 16. You're probably familiar with it, but we're going to go through that a little bit. I'm going to read a couple of different translations of uh, Leviticus 16, starting in verse 8. It says, and this one's from the ASV, Leviticus 16, verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots upon two goats, one lot for Jehovah, the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat upon which the lot for Jehovah as a sin offering, but the goat in which the lot fell for Azazel shall be set alive before Jehovah to make atonement for him, to send him away for Azazel into the wilderness. And I'd also like to read this from Young's Living Translation. And Aaron hath given lots over the two goats, one lot for Jehovah, one lot for the goat of departure. And Aaron hath brought near the goat on which the lot for Jehovah had gone up, and hath made a sin offering. Verse 10. 
and the goat on which the lot for departure had gone up is caused to stand living before Jehovah to make atonement by it, to send it away for the goat of departure into the wilderness. Now Christians have noticed parallels between one offering, the one that's killed, as being for representative of Jesus Christ, and the one that's sent into the wilderness as being representative of what happens to Satan when he's bound. And we're going to get to that later. But as far as Azazel, sometimes some of the uh, Protestant translations don't quite get it right, and some of the Catholic translations for that matter. But I'd like to read something from a Jewish source. And this is, uh, it says, a rabbi named Menachem interprets Azazel to be the angel of death, the devil, the prince which has power over desolate places. Of course, we call him the prince of the power of the air in the New Testament. And then, this is from uh, John Gill, it says, there were Christian writers of great note that understood that this was the devil. Now, these people he calls Christian writers, we wouldn't call, but one of them is Origin of Alexandria. Very important individual to the Greco-Roman faith and the Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he was a big follower of Origin, and he said this was a, the Azazel goat. Then he mentioned some other ones, and he says that some of the Protestant writers noticed that uh, that one represents uh, Christ our mediator and the other the devil. Now I'd like to read something from the Jewish encyclopedia to get their perspective of this. It says the Day of Atonement, according to biblical tradition, biblical tradition, no, it's what the Bible says. So yes, the Jews have problems with tradition too, by the way. It's not just confined to the Greco-Roman face. It's one of the cycle of holidays instituted by Moses. Huh? Didn't we just read Leviticus 23, 1 through 2? Oh, God said, these are my days. Moses read them down and tell people. But the Jewish like to be, ah, it's a tradition from Moses. No. It occurs in the 10th day of the 7th month. Aha, they get it right. That's good. And it's distinguished by abstaining their uh, on from food, afflicting one's soul. It says, take a look at uh, what it says in Isaiah about these kind of things. And it talks about uh, some priests, and in the early morning, the high priest in his robes, he offers a morning daily sacrifice. He does his, his normal kind of things with the lamps. Next in order was the sacrifice of bulls and lambs. Then became peculiar ceremonies for atonement. And they're correct. This is where they get it right. This is unique. It's not shown on the other days. Which the high priest puts on special vestments of linen. And he was only allowed to go to the Holy of Holies once a year to do this. This was a, kind of a unique thing. With his hands placed in the head of a bullock, he makes confessions for his own sins and those of his household. Then there's two goats that are contributed by the people. One designated by Lot for the sin offering. So the Jews knew one was a sin offering. And the other was to be sent in the way in the wilderness for Azazel. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia of 1906. Okay. Once more, the high priest makes confession for a bullock for himself and his, his household. And then he makes the sacrifice. Now, in rabbinical Judaism, they actually have a time of penance, if you will, from the first day of the seventh month, which they call Rosh Hashanah, even though the Bible calls it the day of trump blowing of trumpets. They call it New Year. Uh, up until this particular time, uh, they are supposed to uh, try to meditate on these. These are considered time of uh, awful days. And briefly, from a New Testament perspective, there's a possibility uh, 
well, we're fairly certain that some of the trumpets in the book of Revelation, probably the first one at least, and others, will be blown on the Feast of Trumpets, and that all these trumpets are going to go off, and there's a possibility that perhaps the last one ends on atonement, but uh, it's, uh, I'm still not sure about that. It's just interesting the Jews had that particular tradition. Uh, one thing I try to do when I speak and when I read, I try to be certain about what I'm certain about, and I try not to be certain about what I'm not certain about. Nobody knows any, everything about anything who dwells, dwells in this flesh. We try. We're supposed to grow in grace and knowledge. And hopefully I'm helping you do that. And I can assure you, preparing to do the sermons, it helps me grow in knowledge. Hopefully grace as well. And we try to share what we learn. Now, if you go to Leviticus 16, verse 15 through 19, you learn a bit about the slain goat, which represents Christ. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, to do that with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it in the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement for the holy place until he comes out. Did he make atonement for himself, for his household, and for the assembly of Israel? And I guess perhaps I may have gone over that a little fast. Before he killed the sin offering for everybody else, he actually killed a bull for himself. So he would be ceremonially clean enough to do this next part. Okay? Which is again another indication he was doing this to represent what happened to Jesus Christ. Verse 18, He shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of all the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times to cleanse it. So seven times, typically in the Bible, is talking about completion. So to completely cover the sins. So if you've sinned, you don't think God can forgive you? God can forgive you? And he can do it completely. He not only set up the rules, he set up the plan, because he knew you'd probably mess up. It says in the New Testament, all the sin and falling short of the glory of God. So he had a plan, he already knew. It also says in the New Testament, don't think whatever you're being tempted on, people haven't been in the past. God knows that you can make mistakes. One of the things I like about the Church of God is we understand God's plan of salvation. We believe that God is a God of love and God is all-wise and all-powerful. And certainly God has a plan of salvation that will work. God understood. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, when I started to read the Bible, I realized that faith wasn't the right one. So I erroneously presumed there's two kinds of people, right? Catholics and Protestants. So obviously the Protestants are probably right. Well... I started to talk to some of them. Found out just because it said something in the Bible, they didn't believe it. And I want to spend a long time in this particular sermon on my own background, but one of the reasons that I was attracted to the Church of God was to understand the whole idea of the plan of salvation. Oh yeah, I understood a little bit about prophecy and all that. But in my view, 
Because the plan of salvation that we in the Church of God understand is key. If God is a God of love, and the Bible says a couple of places it is, all-knowing, it says He is, all-wise, etc., then you come to the plan where almost everybody fails. A few years ago, to improve my own background, I studied more into certain Protestant faiths, not because I was become part of them, I was in the Church of God, but understand them. I realized that according to Calvinism, almost everybody ever lived was predetermined to fry forever, to be punished forever. God's a God of love because He's going to be merciful on roughly 2% of the population and allow them to have salvation. Therefore, all the stuff about goats and Jesus' sacrifice and all that, nothing for most people, according to them, just 2%. That's it. The rest of you, too bad. You, and they teach that you, God can't call you, He won't call you, you've already been condemned, and you're going to prove it by living a bad life so He can punish you forever and be satisfied. You say, well, that's ridiculous. But that's what they teach. What about the Catholics? Now it's interesting. We've got a Pope who now says atheists can be saved, which is bizarre, whereas other Popes have said, you cannot have salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And other Catholic writers have said, even within the Catholic Church, only 1 or 2% of those are going to be saved. That's even worse than the Calvinists. <laughs> what about the Protestants? Well, according to Martin Luther, uh, the Pope and all those people are part of the Antichrist faith. So if you get rid of all those, that's pretty much everybody who, most people who profess Christ in the first 12, well, 14 centuries anyway, of professing Christianity. So that gets rid of most of them. Then within the Protestants, the Protestants know most Protestants aren't good Protestants. They've known that throughout history too. So we're still down to some ridiculously small percentage of the population. But I'm going to expand it. 10% which is way more than the Catholics and the Protestants tend to teach. Don't get me wrong, you get some liberals who don't believe what their faith teach. They'll say it. But everybody's supposed to be condemned. That's what they teach. I'll risk getting struck down by lightning over this one. I don't think God is so stupid who figured out how to make us. You know how complicated we are? Even Charles Darwin said his theory of evolution would fall apart if the cell was more complicated than he thought. It is so much more complicated than he thought. Okay, a God who can plan all this stuff. I heard a little bit of rain a few moments ago. You know, there's places it doesn't really rain much. But you know what? God's got water under the ground in places so people can live all over the place. That's all random. Nonsense. A God who can plan out all these things Certainly can plan out come out the plan of salvation is going to work. And I may have mentioned this before. Where are my offices? I can see hedges of plants. They have leaves on them. And each one of these silly bushes probably has a thousand leaves on them. There's a whole bunch of them. Do you know God knows more about the difference between two of those leaves and everything all of us put together? No. How could that be? Well, let's see. God's been around forever. You're finite. And even a lot of what you know, you don't even know. You think you know, but you're not right. But one thing I like about the Church of God is we understand God's plan of salvation. And the Day of Atonement is part of that plan. And I'm going to go through parts of it today. And I was doing that. And I was in uh, Leviticus 16. And he, he, as I mentioned, he sprinkles the blood with his finger seven times. Again, because God's got a plan that's a plan of completion. Christ's sacrifice ties into this. 
you take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and start in verse 18. And some people say, oh, this is just Jewish stuff. So God wrote most of the Bible for what? Jewish people he's not going to call because he's going to condemn the too, right? Because they don't accept Christ. Not in this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Not condemnation, reconciliation, which is where atonement plays into this. Verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world is what, 2% of people? Uh, what, 2% of uh, white Calvinists and all the rest of us are condemned? <laughs> because I looked at that. I'm sorry, but to me it ended up being a racist faith. Don't get me wrong, there's some Calvinists who are other colors. But when they wrote this stuff, what are the people in India, in China? Okay? They've never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, or even at least once, uh, 50 years ago, didn't? Didn't have any idea. They were all condemned by this. So it says, reconciling the world to himself. That's everybody. Not just the people who haven't been born Jewish who could read the Old Testament. Not imputing their trespasses to them. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And that's part of our message. We have the biggest good news message of all time. People condemn us as being doom and gloom. Well, in our plan, God is smart. Our plan, God actually loves everybody. In our plan, which isn't our plan, we're just telling God's plan. In the plan we in the Church of God teach, people are going to be saved. Of all races, tongues, colors, whatever. Almost everybody. That's what we teach. It's not doom and gloom. Yeah, we look out the world. We see the stuff that they're doing. So they shouldn't be doing this. We're polluting the air. We're polluting the food. In the United States, we're getting more and more genetically modified things where they're definitely combining things so things can't reproduce after their own kind. The rise of sexual immorality and the acceptance of it and the pushing of it. At some point in time, we're going to go out and probably get kicked off the internet for so-called hate speech because we tell people that people who are homosexuals are not supposed to be having sex with one another. They're not supposed to be married. God doesn't allow that. But they're getting more and more that that's hate speech. We're getting to an environment where people don't realize the diseases that we're causing. We're trying to warn people that they need to live by every word of this book. And if they did, how wonderful the world would be today. But God knew people were not going to do it that way. So what did he do? He came up with a plan of salvation that would work, which includes the holy days that we're doing now to help picture God's plan of salvation. Now, during this sermon for the Day of Atonement, I'm not going to go through the entire plan. But briefly, those of you who do not have a Church of God background who might be watching this, understand that the Bible is clear that Christ was our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. We are to put sin out of our lives like the Days of Unleavened Bread picture. God did send His Holy Spirit for the first fruits, like the Day of Pentecost pictures. And, and harvest of first fruits presupposes a larger harvest later. And if you have a Protestant or Catholic background, you know the Bible talks about trumpets blowing a lot. 
Well, the Feast of Trumpets, which comes just before, about 10 days before, it's the first day of the seventh month, and this is the 10th day of the seventh month, pictures of blowing of the trumpets. The trumpets are all blown throughout the book of Revelation. These things all have New Testament application. And I'm going to get to some others uh, during the sermon as well. Now, I'd like to uh, read something else from the Old Testament, book of Proverbs. The one thing I learned when I uh, started to uh, leave the Roman Catholic faith and look at the Protestant faith is they seem to think the book of Proverbs counted, the book of Psalms. Uh, the others count, but not as much. At least that's the impression I was given. Perhaps others have other impressions. The Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6 says, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Atonement is provided for iniquity. That's why there's a day of atonement. Because there was iniquity. And Jesus Christ died for our iniquities. Now this was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. We can read about Jesus in the Old Testament if you take your Bibles and go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Now the Greco-Roman faiths know that this is referring to Jesus. They just don't like to emphasize this one particularly. But let me read this here. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is a prophecy of Jesus. And as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty we should desire him. Now those who think that we need to have the slickest preachers and the most entertaining broadcasts, you know, that doesn't seem to be the way God does it. Notice verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men. If people think they would listen to a prophet of God in this age, maybe not. The Bible suggests that people don't do that. The Bible suggests it a lot. If you look in the New Testament... Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, Oh, you said, look, if we were around in the days of our fathers, we would have listened to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all those. She said, No, you wouldn't. But Jesus was, Jesus was prophesied to be rejected. Jesus said, Oh, sure, we see Jesus. We'll know. We'll listen. They didn't listen. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. And the people, the Jewish people didn't. The Hebrews at the time, yeah, he might be causing us trouble. Maybe he'll affect our income. Maybe he'll cause us political problems. Better watch it. If he opens his mouth and doesn't spare our, spare, he cries out. Maybe this will bring in persecution. I was told. We're worried. This other group I was in. You haven't ever crossed the line. But someday, what if you do? We might have persecution. I said, but don't we teach? Prior to the time of the Great Tribulation, the Philadelphians are going to suffer persecution. They didn't answer it. They knew the answer. I said, what have I said that I shouldn't say? They had no comment. Because the top leader of that particular group one time said to me on the phone, he says, Bob, it's remarkable. I don't know how you do it. You don't cross the line. You get close to where you can, what you can say. Look, I'm not going to intentionally do something at this stage 
to intentionally get us kicked off of everything. Okay? But that doesn't mean you pull back farther than you have to. The group I was with pulled back because they were afraid Protestants would complain. Now, I will take responsibility for one thing that happened once. The church I was in did get kicked off of a television station once. Why? Because somebody read something I wrote on the internet and sent it to uh, the station and complained. Why did that happen? Because the church I was in would not clearly teach online that they did not believe in the Trinity. Somebody read that that's what I taught and they realized I was in the church. And so the church got kicked off because of that. And they still wouldn't clearly teach against the Trinity. They do don't believe in it, but they didn't want it online because they're afraid. Now, I'm sorry, but we need to tell people that that is not what the Bible teaches. They didn't tell me to pull it off, by the way. It was interesting. They would tell me to do everything I was doing, just, just as a side. They prayed I would continue to be bold and do everything I was doing. I don't know if it's because that helped them feel that it was okay because they wouldn't do it. But that's what really happened. There's a lot of things that really happened that I'm not going to say on uh, while I'm recorded. But it's been an interesting time. Uh, and uh, actually, I did get an email from someone who said, well, now that you're no longer with that organization, do you feel free to just go out and say what you want? I said, no. I felt free to do what I thought I needed to do anyway. I said, no, instead it's more of a burden. I said, because I, I try to make sure I do a sermon every week and a sermon every week, uh, the letters to the brethren and all this kind of stuff. I said, I can assure you, it was easier. It be easier for me, just, just forget it. Just That's okay. I don't have to do anything. I can just stand for the truth on myself, not try to help anybody else. Just put it out there. Don't care if nobody responds. Or, or pull back. No, that's not the plan. The plan is to fulfill what the Bible teaches and do what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We're to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, which is, concludes God's plan of salvation. And the reason the gospel of the kingdom is considered so dangerous, when Jesus was around, the Pharisees got it. They got a part of it. He's saying that this world system isn't the right thing. But we've got connections in the world. We've got power in the world. That's what we, we, we can't have him saying that because the authorities will get upset with us. Jesus did it anyway. When the king of the north rises up with a pope that does miracles, they're going to say, they're going to bring in world peace. We're going to go out there and say, no, you're not. The only way we're going to get world peace is through the return of Jesus Christ and establish his kingdom, people obeying the laws of God. That's what's going to bring world peace. Not some peace deal or any of the rest of this stuff. They're not going to like that message. But most of the world's going to say, you know what? That's what we want to hear. It's okay to pull back. It's okay. All we got to do if we want to be religious in that temporal society is to mutter a few words before a priest and mutter a few prayers continuously. That's all you got to do. That's, that's the basic plan the way they teach it. Well, anyway, getting back to this, I've digressed. And Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That we, esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's what I was talking about before. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. You ever see our uh, picture that we use? For the continuing church of God with some sheep on it. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And all of us in the church of God sinned too. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, that he opened out his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So opened out his mouth. Because that was the plan. He was taken from prison from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of living. For the transgressions of my people he was smitten. Now, a lot of uh, Protestants realize that the Day of Atonement ceremony, that the slain goat represents Christ. Some, however, feel that the living goat represents the resurrected Christ. Okay? And since most Protestants don't spend much time reading the book of Leviticus, uh, they don't study it enough to really have much of an answer. So why don't we go back to Leviticus chapter 16? Because the Bible's got the answer to a lot of these questions. Leviticus 16, starting verse 20. It says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now this goat wasn't slain. Just the iniquities were put on him. He didn't die for them. Now verse 26. And he who released the goat as this, the scapegoat, and actually the word is the zazzle goat, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterwards he may come into camp. So notice that after this goat is released, someone's got to wash his clothes because he's now filthy. He wouldn't become filthy because he released Christ. That would make no sense. He'd have to do all his washing prior, right? He wouldn't have to do it afterwards. This doesn't represent, doesn't represent Jesus Christ. Now, actually, the term scapegoat in English comes from this story. Uh, now, it's true that the actual physical goat that was there uh, is sent out the wilderness. I don't know if the physical goat mattered, uh, minded so much or not. It got to live. Uh, whether it lived after wild animals or not, I don't know. But what happens to the uh, Azazel goat and what happens to Satan is actually uh, fairly similar. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read about something very similar in the New Testament. And because we do keep the holy days, we understand in the continuing church of God what they picture, we can see how the Day of Atonement from the Old Testament ties into the New Testament and how it foretells something that's going to happen. So for thousands of years, the Jews have had a ceremony with one goat, being a sin offering, another one be put out into the wilderness. 
But the Jews don't believe Revelation chapter 20. Hopefully those of you watching this do. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Bottomless pit, wilderness. Hmm. Verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And remember, the Jewish literature says, yeah, this is a goat for, this is a devil goat. The Azazel goat. They know that. They don't know the New Testament. They didn't get this from the New Testament. So we in the Church of God, what we believe is consistent with the parts that Jews were able to see. They were able to see that. Now this sounds kind of strange, but one of the reasons why I think in the Anglo countries for a while, people kept believing the Bible and stuff. This will sound almost silly, but there was no television. There was no internet. There weren't, weren't smartphones. People need somebody with their free time. They would go to church, they'd socialize, they'd read their Bibles, because it was a book, one book that most people had. So they become, became more and more familiar with it. Well, in the Jews' time, it was like that too. In the prior time, Jesus Christ, I meant. And they would go through these passages over and over again, try to understand all the parts that they meant. And that's where they kind of got some understanding. They didn't get all of it, but they got some. And we're blessed because we've got the Greek scriptures, which we call the New Testament. And continuing, it says verse 2, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, which I read a moment ago, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him in, and set a seal on him, so he should not deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. Now this is consistent with what we read in Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, there's a fit man or a suitable man who goes and gets this goat and sends him out to the wilderness. Well, in the New Testament said, an angel, a fit one, be a fit angel. It's not going to be one of the angels that followed Satan. That to be a suitable one. And he'll throw him into a bottomless pit. And that's where sending him out to wilderness pictured in Old Testament times. On this planet, there is no such thing as a bottomless pit. So there was no physical way to send the goat into a bottomless pit before. But there can be a bottomless pit now. The universe, by the way, doesn't end. Why? Because there's nothing on the other side of space. God could literally have a bottomless pit that never, ever ends. No matter how much Satan might try to go in, he'll never get, he'll never get to the end because it never will end until, until he's released. Now, Herbert Armstrong wrote something that I'd like to read. He said, the real cause, the actual author of those sins was the devil Satan, is it justice for Christ to bear guilt that's not his while the devil goes off scot-free? How oh, Mr. Armstrong wrote it. Do you not suppose God's great plan will finally work just full justice by placing that original blame and guilt right back where it belongs? And that's another part of God's plan. Now, I consider... The bigger part of God's plan is how God is going to call people and everybody will have an opportunity for salvation and live in the kingdom of God. But justice is certainly part of God's plan. 
And Herbert Armstrong understood that and understood how the Holy Days helped picture that. He says, now mark carefully this distinction. Christ bore our guilt, for we've been guilty, even though the devil was the original cause of it. But justice certainly demands that God place right back in the head of the devil his guilt, not our guilt, but his own guilt, for leading us into sin. We're guilty too. And our guilt, Christ bore. Yet all of our sins belong right back in the devil as his own guilt. Why? Jesus said that Satan was a liar from the beginning and the father thereof. Satan met Adam and Eve in the garden and started to tell them a lie. Not a complete lie, partial lie. And they looked at this fruit back then and it looked good. Didn't look moldy and disgusting. Didn't smell bad. They took it. They listened. Because they believe the lie. Every time any of us sin, by the way, we believe a lie. Anytime we sin, we believe a lie. Because we believe it's better to do this than not do it. I'm not going to go into this sermon why God set up the world the way He did. But I will briefly say God created spirit beings who didn't go the way that they should have. And he knew when he created physical beings like us that we would have a problem, as we would have issues as well. But because God is wise and God is all-knowing, he did construct a plan of salvation that would save the most possible number of people. I'd like to say it's going to be over 99.99%. I can't prove that from Scripture, but um, I strongly believe the Bible teaches that nearly everyone who ever lived will be saved, and I absolutely believe that everyone will be offered salvation in this age or the age to come. Now, Christians, when we observe the Day of Atonement, we teach that we're supposed to be at one with God, that fasting humbles us and makes us realize how dependent we are upon God for all our needs, as well as the fact that we need to love others. Now, I'm very blessed uh, I'm one person that most of the time uh, fasting is not particularly difficult for me. Um, those of you who are coffee drinkers out there, and it's not a doctrine in the continuing Church of God, you can't drink coffee. But I don't drink coffee. Uh, those of you who are coffee drinkers probably find a Day of Atonement a bit more difficult. So I would suggest in the future you consider reducing coffee consumption prior to the Day of Atonement, drinking some more water, because that may, that may help. But we realize how weak we are. And even though, for myself personally, most of the time, the Day of Atonement is not that tough. But sometimes when I'm speaking, like right now, it's like, you know, I really could use that glass of water. I mean, in this country, it rains a lot. The last time my wife and I were in New Zealand, it rained 11 out of 12 days. And it rained while I was speaking. But there's none here, of course. <laughs> water, water everywhere. But not a drop fit to drink, at least not for me and those who can fast completely on the Day of Atonement. Anyway, Christians who keep this day also believe that we're dependent on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We can't save ourselves. We do sin. But Satan doesn't 
does play a role in encouraging us to do it. Now I'd like to read a couple of things. The first will be from the Old Testament, 79th Psalm, verse 9. Then I'm going to go to into Corinthians. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. So look, that's from the Old Testament. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. But that's from the Old Testament. The plan is, or the hope was, that somehow God is going to provide atonement for our sins. Now these are people who are already killing sheep and goats and cows and giving grain offerings and all that. The plan still always was to send Jesus Christ who was slain before the foundation of this earth. That was the plan. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now what Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures was what they're referring to. Yes, it's true that later... Apostle Paul's writings are called Scripture. Peter refers to them that way. But he's talking about the Old Testament. That was the plan. Now, I'm going to read something that uh, Herbert Armstrong wrote about, the Day of Atonement of the Fast. And he's talking about reading uh, Leviticus 23, uh, which I've already done, so I'm not going to repeat that. And then he says, From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Wonderful mystery, he says. At one meant with God. Man at last made one with his Maker. And that's one of the things that the Day of Atonement pictures for Christians. Again, in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, verses 29-31, where the symbolism of the Day of Atonement is explained, we find it instituted on a holy Sabbath to be kept forever. And he quotes a scripture that I've already read. And then he says this, notice too, Leviticus 23.32, the expression, from evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Every Sabbath keeper quotes this passage to show that the Sabbath begins at sunset. If we believe that, then why not keep the Sabbath this very text is speaking of, the high Sabbath and the Day of Atonement, which is instituted forever. And that's an issue with uh, people out there who claim to be Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, most of them do not keep the Holy Days, and they quote a lot of the passages that they quote to defend the Holy Days. I mean, they're the Sabbath are actually related to the Holy Days, and they don't quite get it. So Herbert Armstrong writes, Are we consistent when we continually quote this text to show when it's to begin the Sabbath and then refuse to keep the Sabbath as it's referred to? Now he writes, The Day of Atonement pictures a wonderful and great event to take place after the second coming of Christ, which the world is in total ignorance of because it's failed to see the true significance of these annual Sabbaths, which are holy to the Lord. It's failed to keep them as a constant reminder of God's plan of redemption. The symbolism is expressed in the accounts of the day 
of atonement carried out before the crucifixion in 16th chapter of Leviticus. And he talks about the two goats and that uh, he also does a sin offering for himself. And then he casts the lots, the one goat for the Lord and the other for the Azazel goat. Now because this has not been understood, there are many differing views and opinions and explanations of this. Let's therefore regard our own former convictions, study with open minds, without prejudice, proving all things. And that's actually something that the Apostle Paul wrote in Thessalonians, that Christians are supposed to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. We want the truth. The key to this explanation lies in the correct understanding meaning of Azazel. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. It says, the oldest opinions of the Hebrews and Christians think Azazel, this is from the comprehensive commentary, is the name of the devil. The word scapegoat shows a goat which goes away. It says, it's true that the word scapegoat signifies one who bears guilt or goes away. That's true. We've heard Armstrong says, unfortunately, if you will, the word scapegoat in English has another word that's got nothing to do with Azazel, another meaning. You know, someone gets the blame they don't deserve. And that's not the way he says understood. He says Azazel was considered to be the name of one of the malignant demons. It was necessary to be decided by Lot, which was to represent Christ, which one for Azazel. So sometimes people can't tell the difference between Christ's true ministers and the false ones. He didn't write that down in this part, but he said that in the past. And he says, some say both goats were qualified. But the scripture doesn't say that, so we shouldn't assume it. A lot is a solemn appeal to God to decide a doubtful matter. It's a religious ceremony. It includes a supernatural act of God. That's why he considers lotteries to be of the devil, of that kind of lot, because it's profaning an appeal to God. Notice men were unable to decide which goat was qualified to represent Christ. This involved asking God to decide. One lot for the Lord, one for the Azazel. Now the lot was for the Lord just typified Christ, but the other lot was not for the Lord and did not typify Christ, but Azazel Satan. These words most naturally suggest that Azazel is the name of a person here contrasted to the eternal. Because it says there's one for the Lord and one for Azazel. Now the goat which God selected through Lot to represent Christ was slain, just as Christ. Its antitype was slain. But the other goat selected by God represents his lasso was not slain, but was driven into the wilderness, an uninhabited area. It is not a resurrected goat symbolizing the resurrected Christ, for it never died. Again, some Protestants have said that. The uninhabited wilderness to which this goat was driven cannot represent heaven, where Christ went. Heaven is neither uninhabited nor wilderness. So that's another explanation that some of the Protestants have given. After God designated which goat represented Christ and which is Azazel, the high priest killed the bullock for a sin offering for himself, then took burning coals and sweet incense to, into the Holy of Holies, also sprinkling the blood of the bullock before the mercy seat. And the high priest had to do this in order to purify himself to officiate and to represent Christ as a high priest. Now the high priest was ready to go out and officiate. The goat which God selected by Lot to represent Christ's sin offering for the people was killed. Thus, the sins of the people were borne by the guilt, excuse me, by the goat, even as Christ finally, once and for all, bore the sins on the cross of the stake. 
Christ rose again from the dead and ascended to the throne of heaven. The risen Christ is at the right hand of God in heaven. And what's he called there? Our high priest. What was the earthly type of God's throne? Uninhabited wilderness? No. That's where the live goat went. The earthly type of God's throne was the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies. After Christ died, he went into the heavenly mercy seat, intending to intercede for us as our high priest, entering in that within the veil, which the forerunner is for us, entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I probably should have said that was from Hebrews 16, 19 through 20. Again, tying it into the New Testament. Now again, who or what in the Levitical ceremony of the Day of Atonement typified the risen Christ, our high priest? Who went within the veil to God's throne in heaven? The one goat that had been slain. It represented the slain Christ. It can no longer represent the risen Christ. The slain Christ was not our high priest because the Levitical priesthood with its high priest did not end until Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But the risen Christ was a high priest. Now, who took this part in the Levitical ceremonies, temporarily reenacted on this eternal holy day? Why, obviously a child could see it. I'm not sure so a high child could see it, but this is what Armstrong wrote. It was a Levitical high priest, not the goat representing the apostle. So Herbert Armstrong wanted to make clear that during the ceremony, uh, a lot of the Protestant commentaries didn't quite grasp. They understood Jesus was sacrificed. So, you know, they got that right. But after this word, that the goat was not resurrected, and the high priest was typified by the actual physical high priest at the time. As, as we learn, again, the high priest in Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 was Christ. So continuing, because he, he goes into this a bit more. As the slain goat was dead, so now the goat's now dead, who went within the veil, presenting the blood of this goat before the typical throne of God? Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. Now I'm going to read this. This is from the old King James. This is from Herbert Armstrong, quoted. Then he, the high priest, then shall he, the high priest, kill the goat of the sin offering. That is, for the people, and now the high priest himself typifying the work of the risen Christ, bringing his blood within the veil, and sprinkle upon it the mercy seat, and he shall make atonement for the holy place. End of quote. And it was that the high priest taking blood within the veil from the mercy seat, that typified the risen Christ, figuratively taking his blood once for all within the veil to the very throne of God in heaven, there to intercede for us as high priest. Surely this is so plain a child can see. The slain goat represented the crucified Christ. The high priest, by taking the blood of the slain goat in the veil, into the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, a type of God's throne, represented and did the work of the risen Christ, who was ascended to the right hand of majesty on high, there interceding on our behalf as our high priest. Can we honestly continue that the goat teaching... To teach that the goat representing Azazel represented the risen Christ. Well, of course, we don't teach that. Did this live goat take the blood of Christ in the veil to the mercy seat? The high priest going within the veil into the Holy of Holies symbolized Christ's return to heaven. 
The work he did, while in the Holy of Holies, symbolized Christ's work these 1900 years since his death, interceding for us, presenting his shed blood before the mercy seat in heaven. Now coming back out, symbolizing Christ's return to heaven, what did the high priest do? Now, Herbert Armstrong quoted Leviticus 16, 23-26, so I'm going to read that. Again, this will be from the old King James. And if there's parts I missed, by the way, he has some dot, dot, dots, so occasionally he didn't read all every word. And we have made end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. He shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all the transgressions and all their sins, putting him on the head of the goat. He shall send him away by the hand of the fit man of the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him, or carry upon itself, all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. He shall let it go the goat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall wash his flesh with water. He shall let the goat go for the azazel, shall wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in water, and afterwards come to the camp. Herbert Armstrong says, let gets this straight. Is there justice with God? Is not God a God of justice, will of compassion and mercy? Who's the real author of our sins? The devil's the author of them. Even as Christ is the author of our salvation. Jesus took our guilt and blame for our sins and our sins upon himself as an innocent substitutionary, substitutionary sacrifice. He was an innocent victim. He loved us, was willing to die for us. Our guilt, our sins were borne by him. And he alone, and by him alone. And God forgives them, that's our sins, when we repent and accept his sacrifice. And yet if we stop, is this full justice? He says that's why his also goat gets the, the sins laid on him. So people realize that Satan had a role in sin. Now, no, we don't want to be like the old Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. Because we have our own part in it as well. Okay? But the picturing of the Day of Atonement was the picture. There were a couple of parts here. This explains sometimes why we do things that we really didn't think we would. We also have sins we haven't repented of as we should. Now the Bible teaches in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus didn't sin. Since he didn't sin, we know that Jesus kept the Day of Atonement. Now in the book of Acts chapter 27 verse 9, I'm going to uh, just read part of that. So sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Now, what was Luke referring to, because Luke wrote this, according to Protestant commentators? The way the Church of God says it's the fast. What do the Protestants think? Well, this is from Matthew Henry's commentary on Acts 27, 9 through 11. Quote, Sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already passed. That is, the famous yearly fast of the Jews, the Day of Atonement, which was, from the, which was on the tenth day of the seventh month, a day to afflict the soul with fasting. Okay, so they knew that. It's one Protestant commentary. Now I'm going to read from the Wycliffe commentary on Acts 27, 8 through 9. The fast to which Luke refers to is a day of atonement. Now let me say something here. Luke wrote to a Greek guy. Okay? And he wrote in Greek. And this Greek guy is supposed to know the fast has already passed. Well, how is he supposed to know this? 
He wasn't a Jew. This wasn't written to the Jews. How would know it was a fast? How would God expect other people this day to know that it was a fast? Because Christians knew they were supposed to keep the Day of Atonement. Let me tell you something. If you're a Gentile, you, didn't, you weren't brought up keeping the Day of Atonement. Like me. I wasn't brought up. I'm a Gentile. I wasn't brought up keeping the Day of Atonement. You'll remember it's a fast day. You'll remember that. I gotta do what? Really? When is the fast? Oh, September, October. I know when that is. <laughs> of course, Jesus said we should fast throughout the year, too. But this particular fast, you'd remember. Especially you weren't in the habit of fasting. You'd know the fast was then. So I wanted to mention that to let people know that it was clear from the Bible that people knew they were supposed to be keeping this. Now, in other holy days, I have or I will go over the fact that it was known that people were keeping the fast. That was one of the things they were criticized for. <coughs> people were going to keep these Jewish fast days and feast days and all that stuff. Well, that's because people were still doing it. Christians were doing it. The people who look into early church history, the scholars who look at this will tell you, oh yeah, ah, the church was just a bit too Jewish. Yeah, but they're keeping an Asia Minor. These are Greeks. Ah, because they had too much Jewish influence. But I thought Apostle Paul was the Apostle of the Gentiles. Didn't he do away with all that? Of course he didn't do away with any of that stuff. How do we know Paul didn't do away with it? Because in Acts 28, 17, he says, Men and brethren, though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, here I am. They're condemning him for it. Um, I know I went there kind of fast, so if you want, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of the Israel. Well, I, I wasn't. Of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not. Hebrew of Hebrews. Huh? Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness in the law, blameless. So Paul's saying, look, I kept all these days. I still do. I haven't taught against them. And we should be doing it now. The word kafir, K-A-P-H-A-R, or kofir, uh, K-O-P-H-E-R, that's at least how we would do it in, in our language, means to cover or cover over. I'd like to read something that uh, the Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul wrote. First, the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. But to him, this is from Paul, who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Which is what they're talking about in David Atonement. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall impute no sin. Now we're going to go to 1 Peter. And this will probably be the last uh, scripture I'm going to, uh, to do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, 
Let's talk about Jesus. Verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? Remember, I read about that in the book of Isaiah. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Again, I read that in Isaiah. Verse 25, For you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we see that that was the plan. We knew that Jesus Christ was going to be involved, and it was always the plan from the beginning. Now I'd like to read something from the Statement of Beliefs of the Continuing Church of God. And this is on the, it says, the Day of Atonement, called the Fast in the New Testament, Acts 27.9, helps show our weaknesses and need to be closer to God, Isaiah 58, 5 and 11. It also helps picture that Satan has a role in the sins of humankind, that we will be bound for a thousand, he will be bound for a thousand years. Revelation 21 through 3, compare that to Leviticus 16, 20 through 26, Isaiah 14, 12 through 16. Because of this, in the involvement in the New Testament, the Day of Atonement is something that should be highly relevant for Christians. I always like to think that the Day of Atonement is kind of a pause before the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the only feast day that we're commanded to, to fast on or to afflict our souls on. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles follows this, and we're commanded actually to, uh, to feast. Uh, but I always consider this a pause. Not quite the final trial before the, the Feast of Tabernacles begins, but, but sort of, in that sense, it does. But it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to God, to realize how that we do need Him. As your stomachs grumble, and your mouth goes drier, and you're thankful you're not giving the sermon, <laughs> and sunset will be here soon, realize that this day helps picture that Jesus was sent as an atonement for our sins, and that Satan does have a role to play in it. This is part of God's plan of salvation, and one that we, in the continuing church of God, are blessed to know and to teach other people.